Welcome back to another episode of Data Science at Home podcast. I'm Francesco, podcasting from the regular office of Leuven in Belgium. This episode is supported by Amitix Technologies. Amitix works to create and maximize the impact of the world's leading corporations, startups, and nonprofits so they can create a better future for everyone they serve. Amitix is a consulting firm focused on data science, machine learning, and artificial intelligence. Check it out at amethix.com. It's A-M-E-T-H-I-X.com. Back to the show. Thank you for listening to Data Science at Home podcast with Francesco Gadaletta. You are about to get cutting edge insights from the people who are reshaping the world of technology with machine learning, data science, and artificial intelligence. It's time for Data Science at Home. Welcome to the show. In this episode, I will speak about data processing and uh, the libraries that we currently have at our disposal when it comes to data processing capabilities and data transformations. And uh, of course, there are already the usual suspects in front of us, for example, Pandas, that is the most widely used library out there. But of course, I would like to go through uh, what is uh, currently available especially when it comes to very large data volumes, uh, whenever it happens. Not all the time, but when, uh, and I will be very specific in, uh, in the description and the, you know, showing the differences that I found among uh, different frameworks. So why is Pandas the most widely used library when it comes to data processing and transformation? Well, the reason is, in my opinion, is that Pandas is relatively simple to use, uh, especially for the, I would say, uneducated data scientist. When I say that, of course, I don't mean to offend anyone. Data scientists are great people and great scientists. But I believe that the data scientist really wants to focus on, on her own business and their own model or modeling capabilities or algorithm. And they definitely do not want to deal with uh, multi-threaded applications or uh, finding the memory in a consistent state or distributed systems and all that stuff, right? So they want to focus on the statistical properties of the data, uh, how clean this data is, and also the semantic meaning that is hidden by certain records and so on and so forth. And so that's why they are more keen to using something like Pandas because Pandas removes that complexity. It hides a lot of that complexity when it comes to data processing and all, all that happens in the back end. And uh, it allows the data scientists to focus essentially on their own problem. Now, of course, this comes at a cost uh, because simplicity comes usually with limitations. And even the author, the creator of Pandas, wrote a list of the 10 things that he hates about Pandas. I'm not here to cite them all, but uh, there are a few that definitely I, I will have to mention. Uh, for example, the lack of transparency into memory use. It's something that it's really disturbing, especially when it comes to relatively large data set. I'm not speaking about terabyte or petabyte. I'm speaking about, you know, even gigabyte or less. Um, there is still not a very good way of looking at how the memory of your local machine is being managed by, uh, by pandas. Also, there is very weak support for categorical data. I think that there is an update, a recent update on this. Um, so please check the master branch on GitHub with the latest updates. 
Another thing that uh, the creator of Pandas mentioned in his uh, blacklist, I would call it, <laughs> it's, um, uh, it's about appending data to a data frame. And I also, I, I agree with that. It's quite tedious. It's um, kind of cumbersome and uh, not really obvious um, many times. From a computational perspective, this is also very costly. And this is due to the uh, inner uh, architecture of how Pandas has been designed. In defense of Pandas, I have to say that Pandas has not been designed for, you know, to deal with very large data sets, but more on that later. The third among the 10 bad things about Pandas is that it's slow. And so there is limited multi-core algorithms support for large data sets. And here again, in defense of Pandas, that's quite normal because the library has been designed with another objective, another goal. And then probably the, the one that really depends on the, on the language Pandas has been written, which is Python, it's that it is uh, the internals of panda, Pandas are too far from the metal, which means that there is a lot of, uh, there are a lot of layers before you get to the CPU or to the so-called bare metal layer and this is due to the fact that Pandas is heavily built in Python, and so there is a limitation coming from the language um, that it has been written to. Now, of course, there are different approaches and different frameworks that would allow you to have Pandas capabilities or Pandas-like capabilities with uh, larger volumes of data. And in this show, I'm going to list not all of them because I haven't tried them all myself, and usually I prefer to speak about things that I tried in person, but definitely the most widely used and um, the ones that really make sense to mention in this episode. And uh, I will start from Dask, then I will move to Ray, uh, with a little digression on Modin, which is a very new one, and then, of course, Rapids AI, R-A-P-I-D-S dot AI. So starting from Dask, Dask is one of the most widely used frameworks that uh, allow you to deal with uh, terabytes, right? So Dask is a library that um, allows you to deal with such large data set due to the fact that the scaling strategy of Dask is based on the cluster concept, which means that you uh, well, you can allow different nodes to participate to the computation of whatever. And so there is also a nice support for a pandas-like data frame, though it's not really 100% compatible with pandas. But in fact, it, this cluster scalability allows you to break down your massive problem and massive with respect to the volume of data that you are manipulating. Uh, this can be chunked into different partitions and these partitions can get distributed in your cluster. And, and so each node is basically responsible of a calculation on its own chunks or set of chunks. And then of course, in a relatively, you know, kind of map reduce approach, uh, the results are sent back to the uh, to the scheduler and they get reconstructed. Now, Ray works in a very similar fashion. That's why the two are comparable. So Ray is uh, as the same level of maturity as Dask due to the fact that I think they have been designed uh, more or less in the same period. Uh, though Dask is less popular than Ray and this is, was kind of, you know, 
I was even surprised myself because I have been using Dask much more than Ray. Ray just for a bunch of examples, just to get familiar with the framework, to be honest. Um, but apparently Ray is more popular than Dask, though they're very similar when it comes to the, you know, the effort that you need to uh, to spend uh, in order to adopt these frameworks for your particular use case. I would say that Dask is more oriented towards data science problems due to the fact that it has direct support uh, for the, the data frame as a data structure um, that uh, makes things much more familiar when uh, people come from, for example, from pandas. Um, and so except for group buys and joins, probably, which is the, the stuff that requires a bit more attention when it comes to distributed systems, all the rest is, you know, pretty comparable, pretty similar to uh, what you are used um, to work with in Pandas, while Ray is more uh, for general use cases, and uh, I don't believe there is a support for data frame equivalent. But they both use a, a scaling strategy that is based on cluster, and so that's where the similarity also comes in, in the backend. Now, speaking about the backend, I think that the biggest differentiator between the two Dask and Ray is in the scheduling policy or approach, because while Dask uses a centralized scheduler that basically can manage all the tasks from the for the cluster, Ray uses a different approach, which, which is more distributed, so-called bottom-up scheduling scheme. In this scheme, uh, workers submit tasks to their local schedulers and local schedulers can assign tasks to workers. Not only that, local schedulers can also forward tasks to global schedulers kind of an hierarchical way. Uh, and of course, global schedulers can take care of uh, load balancing across machines and stuff like that on a more global scale. A much, much better point in favor of Ray uh, due to the fact that this bottom-up scheduling approach improves a lot task latency and definitely increases throughput. Not to mention that Dusk's centralized scheduler is kind of single point of failure that can even you know compromise your entire calculation if uh, that point fails. Another differentiator is in the way Ray and Dask store data in, uh, in their clusters. Ray stores objects in a so-called object store and serializes them using Apache Arrow. Uh, there is a very interesting framework with the aim of uh, you know standardizing across formats. It's something that I highly recommend. It's open source. There are so many bindings in so many languages. It's really cool. So I really recommend, especially if you are a data engineer, to have a look at Apache Arrow. Back to the uh, the way Ray stores objects is, uh, is uh, much more efficient, in my opinion, with respect to Dusk. I don't recall it has an analog of the Ray object store. So what Ray does is, um, as I said, storing objects in an object store and serializing them using Apache Arrow. And then, you know, worker processes can access these objects in the object store uh, via shared memory with uh, a minimal deserialization from Arrow back to their internal representation. And this, of course, prevents one from copying data over and over again. So these are the major differences that I found uh, between Dask and Ray. Uh, they are worth trying both of them, um, though I would like to mention that the scaling capabilities are very, very much comparable 
that is the terabyte scale or more. And this is due to the fact that by living on a cluster, you know, the more nodes you had to the cluster, uh, the more compute power you have, in fact. And so you can uh, literally process a much larger volume of data with uh, a relatively a number of nodes that increase relatively linearly with the volume. So, you know, that's that's kind of the take home message in terms of scaling strategies and scaling capabilities. Now, is that useful? I don't know, in the sense that how many of you uh, are dealing with terabyte of data on a daily basis? Uh, I would say not so many. I don't expect that there are so many dealing with terabyte uh, of data on a daily basis. If there are, of course, guys, please reach out because I have a lot of questions for you. But with this said, I think that, you know, this is quite quite a point that I will expand on later. Uh, but now let's move to the third framework that I definitely find attractive, which is Martin. Martin is the latest of all. It's a very recent project. And um, the objective of Martin is to build an API that is 100% compatible with Pandas. And so the idea of uh, the authors, the creators of Modin is to have a framework that allows a data scientist to scale or to manipulate larger volumes of data than pandas without the, with zero effort, in fact. So without changing libraries, without even changing the code. And so 100% of what you write in pandas is expected to work in Modin. Except, of course, the import. So you would not be importing pandas, but you would be importing modern pandas. But other than that, all the rest should work out of the box, right? This is what I call minimum entry barrier that would allow, that would definitely allow data scientists to try this out because there is no effort that is expected from, from potential users. Now, of course, modern is very immature in the sense that it's, uh, it's very new. And uh, it's definitely not popular uh, as all new things, but I expect it to be quite on the news in the future uh, due to the ease of adoption. So that's that's great. And also to the scaling ability, it's in the realm of uh, uh, gigabytes rather than terabytes. But back to this point, I would like to you know be a bit critical uh, whenever I hear you know, people optimizing and choosing frameworks for the terabyte scale. And most of the time, these people, they never encounter terabytes of data in their daily tasks. So that makes me, you know, kind of worried because, you know, you are putting a lot of effort, you are forcing your team or your potential users to adapt to a Dask-like or a Ray-like framework. Uh, you know, you have to put a bit of effort in uh, adopting these technologies, setting up the cluster, maintaining the cluster, and then you never experience the terabyte scale. So what's the point? Uh, now, if you deal with the gigabyte of data and you have a, a, a framework that allows you to manipulate these volumes in a matter of hours or minutes, uh, well, then probably that's the best choice because, uh, yes, maybe you will not scale to the terabyte, but probably your business will never do that. So pay attention to this scaling ability that are claimed on uh, on these websites and also claimed on uh, each framework's uh, readme page on GitHub. 
many times you have to ask yourself, do you really need terabyte scale? Is gigabyte enough? Or maybe megabyte is enough, you know, for which all this doesn't make sense anymore. And so pandas would be your best shot. The fourth and last framework that uh, is definitely worth mention is RAPIDS, R-A-P-I-D-S dot A-I. And this is uh, an open source project. It's a collection of library and uh, it allows you to use or well, take advantage of your GPU for all the supported GPUs, of course, and basically move your computation from the CPU to the GPU. So the idea is, um, there is a fancy terminology now, which is GP, GPU, that stands for General Purpose Computing on uh, GPUs or graphical processing units. And uh, this is due to the fact that, you know, there is an observation behind this. That is, if you are not a gamer and uh, you don't spend 24 hours playing video games, your, your GPU is probably sitting there doing nothing. And so if you're also... Uh, if, if it also happens that you have to manipulate some data and data frames, well, maybe you might be using that GPU and perform these calculations and keep your CPU just, you know, at rest so you can do other things with your machine. So that's the basic idea behind rapids.ai. Now, it comes without saying that if you have one node with a GPU, you can try rapids. But if you have multiple nodes with multiple GPUs, as you can see, you can try Dask and Rapids. <laughs> so as you can see, Dask and Rapids can in fact cooperate and they can uh, allow you to perform distributed calculations on GPU. Now, again, this is fancy, this is super cool. But how many of you have this necessity? What happens when you go to the office? Well, probably in this period, you don't go to an office, but is your company really dealing with terabyte of data and there's hundreds of GPUs or thousands of GPUs at their disposal. There are a lot of actors in the world who have this necessity and these requirements, but in fact, you know, these are very rare use cases or very common use cases when you are a massive organization who deals with massive volumes of data and you need probably real-time or, or near-real-time uh, requirements and, so, and stuff like that. So, you know, these are very specific to particular domains. That's what I want to say. So these are the four frameworks that are definitely worth trying. Now, uh, they all take advantage of uh, different flavors of parallelism. Uh, you can be parallelizing on multiple threads. You can be parallelizing on GPU cores or compute clusters. And these frameworks are basically leveraging that type of parallelism that is very specific to the use case they want to cover or they are designed for. With this said, I strongly believe Pandas is a great library and it usually fits most of the data. I would say I would not give a percentage, of course, because it really depends, but most of the data and even relatively big data problems that, uh, uh, that I've seen in my career, they could have definitely been managed by Pandas. You know, it all matters how you write algorithms and how you optimize and, you know, how you try to Pythonize your, your machine learning model or your data pre-processing strategy. A lot of the tricks and a lot of improvements are in that area rather than chunking and, uh, 
and distributing in a cluster, which is a great, which is a great tool, is a is a great paradigm of computation, you know, that resonates with uh, with MapReduce, for example. But many times, when you, for example, move from a pandas to Dask, you have to rethink your algorithm in a Dask way, right? Because when you distribute and you send tasks around the cluster, many algorithms that are used that were used to get access to all the data in a row will not work anymore because in the second case you will have each node having not a panoramic view or 10,000 feet view of your data but they will have the you know the point of your the perspective of the single chunk and so your algorithm most of the time has to be rewritten with Dask in mind or with Ray in mind because these are frameworks that deal with different paradigms of computations. That's it for today. I recommend you drop by our Discord channel. The URL will be published in the show notes of this episode. I will also provide the references to the machine learning and data pre-processing frameworks that I mentioned in this show. That's it for today. I'll talk to you next time. You've been listening to Data Science at Home Podcast. Be sure to subscribe on iTunes, Stitcher, or Podbean to get new, fresh episodes. For more, please follow us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook, or visit our website at datascienceathome.com.